Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. This is the book of Revelation, session 9, entitled The Return of Christ. And I'm half tempted to just sit down because this message was already completely preached tonight by Jeremy Jarvis and his worship song selection. I don't know if he looked and saw what the message was. He didn't ask me. But like every song he sang tonight was like verses and stuff written on this page. So it was a kind of a fun little prep. I mean, there have only been a couple of times that I can ever remember that it was that overt where the the song selection was that clearly what we're talking about. So um, go Jenks. All right. So we're talking about tonight the return of Christ. And remember, in this study of Revelation, we, we uh, jump out of Revelation a little bit to help make some points. But predominantly, we're trying to learn the book of Revelation. And so these subjects, these themes that we're covering each night, uh, we're developing them from the book of Revelation. We're trying to be able to see what all is entailed in these 22 chapters. So as a little bit of an introduction here, again, this is the part where we're not going to be in the book of Revelation, but we're going to be kind of hopefully setting the stage for us tonight. We want to talk about Jesus actually coming back. And what I want to uh, just make like, I don't know, a reminder or kind of abundantly clear is we have all but lost the fact of Jesus' coming. It is not something that we think about, uh, by and large, in American church culture. It's not something that's taught on directly, alluded to, you know, when Jesus comes back. But we're thinking of it almost like when I win the lottery. You know, it's like, it's it's this proverbial, far-off, non-existent, so ethereal, it doesn't have any tactile uh, application. We're not thinking of it as like, you know next Sunday, you know, the day after Saturday, it's going to happen. I mean, next Sunday is going to happen. You know, we're not thinking about it in that sort of a sense. Or, and, and part of it is because we don't know the day. But us not knowing the day has wound up coming somehow, we've come so short in a, a point of bankruptcy, I think, where the subject is so uh, far off and aloof. It just, it seems like it's not even real. And That's completely the opposite of the way that the entire New Testament positions our hope and and the very purpose of the gospel. One of the things that I just, I've made, I've said a couple of times, I just want to make clear again. The return of Jesus is as central to the gospel as his death, burial, and resurrection. He is coming again. The fact that he's coming again is just as important as the fact that he died. The fact that he rose again. It is just as important, but our gospel so often in our, in our conversation, in our expectation, it's all historical. It's so much of what we think about when we think about the gospel message is what happened and not what will happen. And all of what happened was unto what will happen. The gospel is the eternal gospel. It is not just a historical reality. It was a, we have a moment that points to forever of which we get to be a part and so the gospel proclaims Jesus' second coming as loud as anything. And so what I want to do is, I just want us to look here at the title that Paul speaks about 
The return of Jesus, in a way, I mean, I'm calling it a title. It's a phrase that he dropped in one of his letters. It's Titus 2, 13. We wait for the blessed hope. The blessed hope. We wait. We're waiting. We're waiting for the blessed hope. What is that blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our blessed hope. Now, it doesn't say a blessed hope or a really good hope. It's the This is the blessed hope. This is actually supposed to be fuel for every saved person. The blessed hope, the thing that gets us up in the morning. What? Well, Jesus is coming back. Well, it looks really dark outside and and society's getting bad and you lost your job. Jesus is coming back. He is my blessed hope. I can put up with all this nonsense because the man is coming. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope is the promise. He is coming back to the planet. He is coming. Second point, as followers of Christ, we very much want to see and live and think about being part of the heavenly kingdom and that kingdom being made reality on the earth. Kingdoms are led by kings. Kingdoms are led by kings. And each kingdom led by a king feels a little different, focuses on a little different thing, geographically is positioned a little differently, language is a little different, customs are a little different kingdoms the precedent of the kingdoms are set into place by the king we are look we are part of a kingdom and the most important part of the kingdom is the king who's coming to rule it the king who is going to come back to the planet and establish his rule gave you this verse out of isaiah 63 who is this coming with his garments stained stained crimson who is this robed in splendor striding forth in the greatness of his strength it is i proclaiming victory mighty to save who is this coming we have a coming king a king who is coming we need to understand the difference between a kingdom with a king who is far off who's promised to return and a kingdom that is being real-time run day to day by that same king totally different realities right now we have only the shadow Right now we have only the down payment of that which will be. When King Jesus, all hail King Jesus, the whole planet, all hail him, not as a far off ethereal concept, as a man sitting on a throne. We're all seeing him with our eyeballs. We've shaken his hand and given him a hug. All hail King Jesus. Think the medieval movie, the new king, the good guy, finally gets on the throne. Hail King whatever. It's that moment, but it's for real. And it's not one nation. It's the kingdom of God on earth. This is our blessed hope. We have a coming king for real. And really, until he comes, this is all like plan B. This is all like lesser than. This is all what, just a shadow of that which will will be what is coming. All hail King Jesus. We are waiting for the coming king. Jeremy touched on this one too. Jenks, you just really did good tonight, man. I'm just telling you. Praying in the king. We are told that we are to look forward to his return. More than look forward to, we're told we're to actively participate to get him back faster. Now, I just want to, just practical theology for a second. I mean, how much time have you given thought to, I can get Jesus to come back to the planet sooner than he was going to? Let me just read you some verses. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 12. 
Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, talking about the earth and all of the transformation that's going to happen, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Hastening, speeding up, making it happen faster. That's your Bible. Speed it up. Huh? You know, you mean Jesus can come faster or slower depending on what I do? Yes. I mean, that's a really interesting practical point of theology. Because if you're not thinking about that, you're probably not actively engaging with the participation that could actually speed up the reality. You can hasten, and more than you, we can hasten the day of the coming of the Lord. Oh my goodness. How? Well, part of it is through godliness. Part of it is through specific kingdom initiatives. There are certain things that the Lord wants done, and if we'll do them, they'll partner with the plan, and it, it actually ushers in his return. But in all honesty, prayer and fasting does it faster. Prayer and fasting. You know, at the end of the age, when Jesus finally shows up, you know when he shows up? When the whole body of Christ cries out, Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, come. We cry out, come, and he comes. We intercede for Jesus to come. Have you ever thought of such a thing? Come. Jesus, come back. Jesus, come back. Have you ever thought to pray such a thing? It's actually a profoundly biblical prayer. It's one that the entire body of Christ will pray at one point in unison. And Jesus, in that moment, will real-time respond, yep, and appear. Okay? I mean, that's pretty powerful. Well, you don't got to wait till that moment. We can get started and fill that bowl up now. Praying. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 9, 15, talking about himself as the bridegroom. Us as the friends of the bridegroom, those that get to attend the bridegroom, that's such a deep, near, intimate friendship. That's like the closest guys. You know, the, the attendance of the bridegroom on the day of the groom's wedding. That's a big deal. He, Jesus said, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Talking about his first coming. While I'm with you guys on the planet, how can you fast? What would you even fast for? I'm right here with you. The time will come. When the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. That fasting is actually an engaging to actually put a little bit of salt and pepper on your prayers when you say, come Jesus. It's to get your hearts engaged. Obedience, holiness, specific acts of, uh, of initiatives in the kingdom, these all partner with the Lord to get Jesus to come back to the planet hastened, faster, faster. That's such a wild way to live. What are you living for? I'm trying to get this business up and running. What are you living for? The second coming. Well, what does that look like? I hasten it. Well, what do you do? I do a lot of nothing. Praying, fasting, asking God for wisdom to even know how to hasten, but I'm hastening. That's what I'm all about. It's my blessed hope, brother. I'm telling you, that's a better way to get preoccupied. It's a far more biblical way to get preoccupied, too. We can hasten the day. All right, well, now that we got that as a little bit of foundation, let's go to the book of Revelation and let's see a little bit about this. Because, again, the message tonight is about the coming of the Lord, the return of Jesus. 
So part two, page two. Jesus' coming is a major theme of the book of Revelation. It's not like a side theme. It's like one of the big ones. One of the big points of the book of Revelation is God wanting to make it really clear to the human race and specifically to the church, Jesus is coming back to the planet. The book of Revelation over and over declares, proclaims, I mean, takes it from this angle and that angle, talking about the second coming. I just want to say it this way. One of the hopes that I have tonight in this message is as we look at these verses and these themes, I want us to be freed up to start thinking about the book of Revelation as the Jesus comeback book. Instead of scary end time events, it's the book of the revelation of the second coming of Jesus. It's the book talking about the coming king. It's the book declaring Jesus is coming back to the earth. If we start thinking about the book of Revelation that way, and we're searching for it as we're reading page after page, we're looking for the coming of Jesus, coming of Jesus. One, we'll partner with it being our blessed hope. And two, the book of Revelation now means what it was supposed to mean instead of what we've made it mean. Unknowable. Do you think about how ridiculous it is that the book of Revelation would be unknowable when it's a book all about him coming back? And that's our blessed hope. So your blessed hope is unknowable. Sorry, suckers, you just can't figure it out. I know it's your blessed hope and all, but it's not knowable. You just can't understand the end times. It's just too hard. But it's still your blessed hope, but not really. You just kind of have to pretend. That's, that's, that's crazy. The book of Revelation is meant to be understood. The book of Revelation is revealing our blessed hope, the return of Jesus. Let's look at a few things. He's called the coming one, if you will, multiple times in the book of Revelation. John says it. The angel says it. The living creatures say it. Everybody says it. Here's a part A, page two. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. From him who is to come, the coming one. This message that I'm about to give you, it's from the guy that's coming back to the planet. It's important that you know, he, he, he was, he's right now. It's really important. You understand, he's coming back to planet E. He's coming. Again, Revelation 1.8, again, Revelation 4.8, same thing. The coming one. The one who is to come. Who is to come. He's coming. Part B. Every eyeball will see him. Revelation 1.7. Look. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. You can't see him if he, if he isn't coming. But you can see him if he's coming. This isn't a, a fake. This isn't a, uh, a um, symbolic concept. He's actually coming and every eyeball will see him. Every eye. They will see him because he's coming. That's a profound statement backing up his comingness. Now he's coming and everybody's going to see it. It's a big deal. No, no, nothing in history has everyone seen something. Name the last thing that everybody saw. Nothing. Not even the Super Bowl. Nobody has ever seen one thing. I mean, there's never been a, I don't even know how to talk about this. It's such an odd thought for us. You know that thing that everybody saw that's never happened. It, well, it will. Every eye will see him when he comes. He's coming. Warnings to repent before he comes. He gives a couple of strong warnings to the church. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you 
<laughs> and remove your lampstand from its place. Revelation 2.16, repent, therefore, otherwise, I will soon come to you. Oh, that's nice. And fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Oh, this is one of them repent verses. You're coming, and not everything you do when you come is going to be happy and, and big smiles. I will come. The thought process of Jesus coming is over and over in the book of Revelation. It is a book about his coming. Additional warnings to be ready for his coming. Revelation 2.25, hold on to what you have until I come. Revelation 3.3, 3, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. and You will not know at what time I will come to you. Revelation 3.11, I am coming soon. Revelation 16.15, look, I come like a thief. This, this idea of Jesus coming is really, really real. And yet it's one that like we're just not, like, it's like theological Sunday school message stuff. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know how to talk about it. It's like something that we sort of kind of believe, and if anybody said, do you believe it, we'd say, yes, we believe it. But we have absolutely no practical application of that thing that we say we believe. And it doesn't touch our life in a way that dictates any decisions. It doesn't inform the decisions that we make. It doesn't alter the way that we process. It doesn't change how we engage in worship. I mean, there's kind of a problem. It's, there's a little bit of a lack here. Because while we would say, yes, I believe that, I just don't know how true it is that we believe something that doesn't make any impact on our life. You know, I believe in gravity. There's a lot of things that I do in life that prove I believe in gravity. And it's like, I just don't know what it is in our lives that proves we believe he's coming back to the planet. Why did he make this point so big? Why not just you're saved, and I'll tell you the rest of the story when it matters. Why tell us a thousand times, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, I'm the one who's coming back, get ready, I'm coming back. Why? Why does it matter? Because we're supposed to be a generation that lives like he's coming back. There is one generation that will actually experience 10,000 prophecies of his coming. And that generation had better have lived different than the generation before it. That generation had have better lived in preparation like it was true. Now, every generation would have been well served to live like it was true, but there's one generation that cannot afford to live differently. I believe we're living in that generation. It is time for us to live like he's coming back. Like this matters more than a lot of other things that the world is telling us matter. The coming of Jesus Christ back to the planet. This is what matters. I'll just tell you this. If you live your life for this, you'll live well. You get a big house upstairs, and you, you will have made so much sense to angels and Jesus and your own spirit inside. If you live like your world tells you to live, and you sprinkle a little salt and pepper of Jesus is coming back in your life, you will have lived for yourself you have lived for all the things that the world is telling you to live for, and you will have regret. And when he comes, you will have regret in your heart. You will have regret. It is time to live like Jesus is coming back to the planet, like he's told us I don't know how many times. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Why do you keep saying that? It's not once or twice or ten times. It's dozens and dozens of times in Revelation alone. Why do you keep saying that? Because I'm coming. And I want you to live like that's true. 
I want you to live like I'm coming. And you live different if you believe that for real than if it's a verse that you heard one time. You live different. He promises rewards at his coming. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy written in this scroll. Jesus said, I will bless. When I come back, anybody who believed the book of Revelation and lived like it was true, I will bless them big time. I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they've done. He promises rewards at his coming. I am coming soon. The bride partnering with his coming. I gave you guys one of these verses a little bit earlier, but I just want you to see this. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. He's come, it's wedding time, the wedding of the Lamb has come. Let us rejoice, let us engage in this. This is the body of Christ in that hour, and his bride has made herself ready. The bride has made herself ready. The bride has partnered with the coming of the, of the bridegroom. The bride didn't get to the point of Jesus' return and go, oh my gosh, he's here, he's coming. Why didn't he tell us? He could have told us at least once. And just shake your head, shake the head. He's like, I told you. Well, I got good news for us. We are going to get this message. If we haven't yet, we will. Because messages like this one are going to start to come more and more frequently. And I don't mean I'm going to do it. I throw a little bit more in there. I mean, it's going to start to become more normal because Jesus wants a paradigm shift. The bride cannot make herself ready if the bride has no clue that the wedding day is coming. The bride cannot get ready accidentally for it. Oh my gosh, where did that dress come from? Dang, and it fits. Wow, that's awesome. I, how'd that happen? Brides get ready. They spend some time. They spend they a couple of amens from the ladies. They spend some time getting ready. You have to have the revelation of the wedding day in order to get ready for the wedding day. I promise you, Jesus' leadership is going to shift the conversation in this generation. We are going to start thinking like he's coming. And then we're going to start living like he's coming and preparing like he's coming and partnering with his coming. And then we're going to gain more revelation and more and more and more to even know what in the world it looks like to prepare for his coming. But one thing's true. The bride will have made herself ready by the time of his return. It's real. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Let, him, him who, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This is... The Spirit and the Bride, so the Holy Spirit and the church, the Bride, in unison, in the right moment, are now not just praying, come, we want you to come back in intercession. It's almost the declaration moment. It's the, it's the go button. The Bride, in unity with the Spirit, pushes the go button. And the Bride, universally across the earth, says, come, but it's, it's the actual come moment. It's the big It's the moment. The bride says, come, and his response, just a few verses later, Revelation 22, verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I just love to sneak that extra one in there. I'm coming. Okay, come. Okay, good. Don't forget. I'm coming. Okay, good. Come. Amen. Come. Jesus is coming back to a church that's praying for him to come back. To a church that's thinking about him coming. The subject of the coming of Jesus needs to graduate from whatever little elementary Sunday school 
to reality and lifestyle and thought process. The coming of Jesus is reality. It's real. Got some passages describing his appearing on there. I'm going to move down just for the sake of time. Now, I want to give you this here as uh, part of our, our message tonight. The timing of his coming. I want to talk about the timing of his coming. Now, it's true right now we do not know the day or the hour. But there will be a time when we do. And one of the ways that we will know is he gave us the signs of the times to tell us when he was coming. And when those signs aren't happening, there's no way to know when it's going to happen. Is it coming soon? Is it decades out? Is it hundreds of years, thousands of years? But when the signs of the times begin to happen, you now start to know at least the generation. And then you start to narrow it down more and more. Jesus said, actually, if you want to get down to it, the passage about you will not know the day or the hour. It will be like it was in the days of Noah. I'll just make a connection point. Jesus said in that passage, you don't know the day or the hour. It will be like it was in the days of Noah. Noah, a hundred years out, did not know the day or the hour of the flood. But the day before the flood, he knew, get on the boat, boy. And the generation leading up to it, he knew, build a boat, bro. Why am I going to build a boat? Because I'm about to kill everybody. I want to tell you definitively, the passage that we use to say no one can know actually was to say the exact opposite. You will be able to know when it's time to know. And until it's time to know, you're right, no one knows. But when it's time to know, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. And you will know, like Noah knew, in right order and sequence. Noah knew eight days out, it's in eight days. And then he knew tomorrow, it's tomorrow, and he got himself on the boat. And as a result, because he was responding to the timing and the plan of God, he and his whole family were saved. You see? So we need to understand God actually does want us to understand timing. We just don't know it right now. We just can't. And anybody who predicts a date, that's silly. That's not how that works. That's not the purpose or the plan. But the church will absolutely know. How will the church even know to cry, come, unless we've got the move of the Spirit going, I know the day and the hour. It's right now. <laughs> you know it? I know it. We all know it. Come. And then, boom, he comes. So we will know. But more than that, in a general sense, we can know because there are many markers in uh, the Bible, and I'm going to just do, I'm going to focus on one tonight in the book of Revelation, but there are many markers that actually tell us sequentially, you're getting closer, you're getting closer, hey, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, okay? I want to focus on the subject of the last trumpet. I want to just look here. Part A, page four. The trumpet after the judgments begin. So I just want to make it really clear. The second coming, the time of Jesus' return, does not occur until after horrible, horrible things have happened. Horrible things. Here it is, Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Immediately after the distress of those days. Immediately. That's a timer. Immediately. Immediately what? After horrible things. Immediately after the distress of those days... The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken at that time. Well, I thought we couldn't know the day or the hour. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. 
and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Just real quickly, the timing, the chronology of events, really, really bad things. It's called the Great Tribulation. Really bad things. After the distress of those days, Jesus will come. He will appear in the sky. How will he appear in the sky? He will appear in the sky at the sounding of a trumpet. And then the angels will go out and gather the elect, the rapture. The rapture happens after the horrible, horrible things have happened on the planet. The rapture happens after the horrible, horrible things have happened on the planet. First, horrible things. Next, after those, immediately following those days, immediately following the distress of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. He will send out his angels, and they will gather the elect from this end of the earth to the other. Next, Jesus comes at the last trumpet. So this passage, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, it became understood clearly and theologically in the apostolic camp in the first century church. They knew Jesus. They knew Jesus' preaching. They understood theology that Jesus had taught. So one of the things that was understood in, G in uh, Paul's day, as Paul's writing letters to the various churches, is the revelation that when that trumpet is sounded, that equals Jesus' return. Okay? So Paul writes this verse in 1 Corinthians 15. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, when? At the last trumpet. For that trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. This is the exact scenario being described in Matthew 24. The angel sends it out. The, the, the angels, man, having a hard time here. Last trumpet is sounded. The angels go out. They gather the elect. They, they gather the elect from the far ends of the earth. Not everybody will have been dead at that point. He says, when Jesus comes back to us and we're raptured, some are dead and buried in the ground, and they're going to get raised. And some are alive on the earth. He says, we'll not all be dead, but we will all be transformed. And it happens at the last trumpet. All right, last trumpet. That's great. All right, let's talk about this last trumpet. The seven trumpets of Revelation. The book of Revelation describes, as we've talked about, three different judgment series. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of wrath. The seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven trumpets. The sixth trumpet is not the last trumpet. The seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. They go in sequential order. Revelation 8, 2 and 8, 6. I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets, they prepared to sound them. And one by one, these trumpet judgments are released. The, uh, the trumpets in the book of Revelation, really obvious. They are not just a trumpet blown, though there will be a trumpet blown. They are also massive judgments against the planet. They are really bad news. The last trumpet, the last really bad news, is actually the bad news that causes the earth to mourn. Jesus is coming. It is both glorious for the church and a massive judgment for the lost. It is a judgment, and it's glorious. It's our blessed hope, and it's totally horrible for the lost. It's both. It's the great and terrible day of the Lord. When the seventh trumpet sounds... Look what happens, Revelation 11, 15 through 16. The seventh angel, he sounded the seventh trumpet. Remember, it's the last trumpet. It's the last trumpet that Jesus taught about. It's the last trumpet that Paul taught about. It's the last trumpet. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, in relationship to the last trumpet being sounded, this is what heaven says loud. Heaven yells this when the last trumpet sounds. 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. That's what happens when Jesus comes back. At the last trumpet, Jesus now takes lordship, leadership, real-time kingship over the planet. And until that moment, it was a future reality, though promised. It wasn't in full effect. Now have come the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he's ruling on the planet. We give you thanks, Lord Almighty. Why? Because you've taken your great power and you have begun, for the first time ever, you have begun to reign on the earth. We thank you because you have begun to reign. This is the moment that we are waiting for. This is our blessed hope. It's right there in the book of Revelation. We see the last trumpet. The timing of the return of Jesus. Our glorious hope, our blessed hope, the glorious day of our redemption the timing is at the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, this reality, when the kingdom of our Lord, be, uh, when the kingdom of our God and the kingdom of the earth becomes the kingdom of our Lord on earth. All right, the earth will mourn at his coming. Remember, we read that verse a couple of places. We saw the mourning happens. We read in the Revelation, I'm sorry, the Matthew 24 verse, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, says, it's really good news for the redeemed. Because all the angels go out and they, they get all the redeemed. And it's a really good day for them. This is everybody else is going to mourn. It's going to be bad. Bad. Well, Revelation 1-7, as we open the book of Revelation and we begin to journey, what does the book of Revelation say? What is it about? We see this, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. All that's good so far, even those who pierced him. Uh-oh, duck. And all the people of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Now, it's important that we understand this. All of the people in existence will mourn? Nope. All the people remaining on the planet, all the people of the earth, of which you and I will not be. We will have just been taken up. Remember? The angel gets dispersed and goes and gets all the people from the far corners of the earth, we will have been taken up. We will no longer have our tootsies on the ground. Everybody on the, on the ground will mourn for various reasons. For three different reasons. The remaining Jews. There will be many Jews that will have not given their life to Jesus and they will have not have died in the process of the Antichrist regime. They will not have taken the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast will be in a very primary way aimed at them. It will be aimed at Jews, not only. There will be a whole lot of Jews that go, oh my gosh, we totally missed it. That's our Messiah. They'll go, I can't, I, did you know? I mean, I, somebody told me, that crazy Christian I used to work with, but I didn't believe him. And they will mourn, genuinely mourn, because they realize they missed him. They missed their Messiah, and they will mourn. Second group, all the rest of the lost. They will mourn because they realize they missed him. That they were given the opportunity. That they could have known Jesus. And they will mourn. But the ones that are going to mourn the most are the reprobate. All those that have taken the mark of the beast. And there will be the vast majority of the earth will be in this category. They will have taken the mark of the beast. And they will mourn because of the assurance in a second they're going to burn forever in the lake of fire. The greatest mourning will come from the greatest group. From the largest group. They will mourn because they know 
This man and his leadership has only one sentence for all of us who took the mark of the beast against this man and against, uh, against his, uh, God's son, Jesus. And that is to be thrown alive into the lake of fire. And just one point that you just want to understand because it's so painful. You want to bring this point up with anybody that walks away from the Lord. You want to bring this point up. You're going to live forever somewhere with a resurrected body so you can feel the environment. You're going you're gonna to feel the environment. Heaven or hell, you're going to live forever and get to experience wherever you are, you're going to feel it. Forever. You will live forever. You are an eternal being. You do not ever cease to be, and you will be in one place or another forever. It's really important. Jesus is coming. Glorious subject. Okay, so now we're going to break up into groups. All right. We're going to go ahead and uh, jump into our time of uh, Q&A here. And if there's a group that needs a minute, go ahead and take that minute. For the other groups, remember, uh, part of what we do in this uh, time is I'm going to ask uh, our group leaders to ask the question, and then I'll repeat it. For those that are watching online, they're not going to be able to hear the group leader uh, ask the question. And really, one of the things that's important is the reason we're doing a takeaway in each of the groups and then a group question is to just like rehash this stuff over and over from multiple angles, multiple thought processes. Let's answer it again and again. You know, a little nuance, different this way, a little bit, uh, you know, a different verse that way, so that we get this in us, so that we actually walk away with some clarity um, is the hope. So uh, we'll go ahead and start over here. Uh, Jeremy, what was uh, the group question for you guys? It's great. Uh, the, the verse, the question is around the verse, <clears throat> Revelation 22, uh, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. What's going on there? Because it's more than just the bride says, come. So a uh, great question. You know, what's going on there? This passage is supposed to be a provocation to the planet. This passage is supposed to get in our DNA. It's supposed to get in our evangelism. It's supposed to get in our one-on-one -on -one coffee appointments. The thought process of beckoning people into the goodness of Jesus, it's not get saved, it's come to him. It's not get out of hell, it's come if you are thirsty. It's come to the one who is the answer. It's come to the only name that's going to make any sense for a billion years. It come to him. And so it's supposed to infiltrate every aspect of life. So this, <clears throat> this uh, passage, the entire book of Revelation, it's instruction. It's also prophecy. It's declaration of what will be. So this is, you know, for hundreds of years, it's inviting people to this Jesus. In the last generation, it's the final evangelistic push of Come to him. He's coming. He's coming. The coming one, the good one, the bridegroom. Come to him. He's good. It's also in the unison of the Holy Spirit and the church in that hour, the declaration. It's the come moment, Jesus. Come to which he replies, I'm coming. It's now time. So it's, it's multifaceted. It's beautiful. It's also declaring 
this will be culturally relative and real in the hour of his coming. Like this is Jesus making his appeal through John, making his appeal to the end time uh, 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 planet, to the, to the, the governments and the, the kingdoms and the peoples of the earth in the last generation, come all you who are weary and thirsty. Come to him. And it, there will be no time where the message of Jesus will be more needed, felt, uh, responded to than the final generation. And so all of this, it's, it's beautiful. I would just encourage you, honestly, spend a lot of time meditating on those, three, those two or three verses and just get some clarity because there are layers and layers of the beauty of the man, of the beckoning, of the gospel at the end of the age, of the, the church in unison. There's, that is a thick couple of phrases there. So I, I, that's a great, great question. Um, okay, let's go over here. Castle. So the question is, talking with friends, family, your small group, people you go to church with, you're hoping, you're wanting to provoke their heart to live like Jesus is really coming. How do you do that? Well, I don't, I mean, in a, in a systematic sense, you can't make anybody do anything. All you can do is get clarity yourself so that then when you talk about it, you're making sense instead of echoing Bible verses. You, you got to get a little bit of clarity. And so I think that the, the onus is actually on us in a, a far deeper way than telling them. I think it's, it's preparing for that conversation far more than a Bible study preparation. How real is it to you? Because you're not going to make a lick of sense to them if it's not real to you. And real to you doesn't mean you came to the Bible study and heard the message. That is not real to you. That's provoked. That's like, okay, I need to figure this out. I need to get some, I need to get some oil on this subject. But until you got oil, you're not going to make any sense to anybody. And, and that doesn't come cheap. That doesn't come easy. I don't know that I'm provoking any of you. I'm sure trying, but I don't know that I am. It's like I don't, there's not like a systematic way. So, but I can tell you that praying about it, thinking about it, praying, come Jesus, praying, God, give me revelation about you. Help me know you, Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the answer to every question. Help me know you so that dot, dot, dot. I make sense to a lost person about why they don't want to be lost. I make sense to a saved person about why to live for Jesus is real. I make sense to somebody that says they like prayer to, you know, jump into prayer at an additional level of commitment and lifestyle. I mean, Whatever it is, help me know you so that when I talk about you, it makes sense to people. And people go, oh, well, I want the Jesus you got because that sounds pretty good. But you don't get that because you can quote a Bible verse. I mean, there's plenty of theologians that will bore you to tears and send you far away from the Lord. It's like we need people with, we need friends of the bridegroom. We need people that know him. And, that, and because they know him, they can talk about him. They can, they can provoke people. They can... And because they know him, they know his word. And so when someone misquotes or misappropriates a scripture, they've got enough living understanding of those verses to be able to go, hey, I love you, but I, I think maybe you're taking this from a different rec uh, direction than it was intended. 
And so we got to know the word. We got to know the man. We got to just have lives of prayer. And, and so I think the answer is like way more complicated than we want it to be. We want it to be do the three-step program and you're there. And that won't work. The problem is the three-step program. That's actually the problem. Because we lean on it like that fixes problems. And, and it, it doesn't. We, people need revelation. And, and the people starts with us who are trying to t- talk them into revelation uh, of having that clarity. So, it, I mean, it's Jesus wants love sick worshipers. He wants deep friends. That Then he says, oh, you'll draw near to me? Well, then I'll share secrets with you. I won't tell anybody. And then you know secrets, but he, because you're so close to him, you're not arrogant in the dispensing of the information. You're humble in the dispensing of information, which is actually then drawing people in meekness to Jesus. I mean, it's all about friendship with the Lord and, and then out of that, getting clarity from the word about him. And, and so I, you know, the answer is just, it's like know God and love him a lot and then tell people about it and then hope, pray for him. And a, and a little bit of patience. Maybe that's the one practical you could take away with, with just a second. Maybe a little bit of patience. We are so addicted to instant problem solving. And we've got too many examples of how that works. And it just doesn't work in the kingdom. And there's nothing instant. <laughs> problem solving is, is a labor. And so, uh, so just give them a little bit of time. Give yourself a little bit of patience. Talk to them about it. Totally fail. Assess how you failed. Go home and cry. Talk to Jesus about how you, your message didn't make a lick of sense. Ask him for revelation. Meditate on the passages that you totally fumbled over. Get more clarity. Ask him to help you love him better and love them better. And then go back and fail a little bit less bad this time. Repeat. Kayla in this group. So in light of Jesus' coming, what practically can we do to live like that's true? What, what, what can we do to live in light of that? Um, I mean, I'm sure that there are 10,000 uh, answers to that question that the Lord would want to make real these five to that person and these three to that person. I'm positive that in the broad sense, it's the same answer to the question that was just asked. We must know him and believe what he says. And he says he's coming. So we believed John 3.16. I mean, we believed it. God so loved the world, even dirty, rotten, sinner Brad, that he died for me, and I can know him. And it's the same Bible, the same Jesus that says, I'm coming back. You remember when I said John 3.16 and it wasn't a Bible verse? It was me talking in conversation. Remember when I said that? That was my first coming. I'm real. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to say and do more stuff. And so I think it's the very starting point is meditating on the reality of it. And then the second is asking Jesus the question, what would it look like? And talking to your friends about it. But in, in, in the, in the three-part practical, it's pray and fast for him to come back and for revelation about him coming. Second, it's ask him for the practical steps that you can take to partner with his coming. I overheard some of the conversation over here and and the importance of the sent ones 
to go get the gospel message to every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's an essential part of partnering with hastening the day. It's not the only thing, but it is an essential part of partnering. Lord, how can I be a part of that? What can I do uh, to be a part of that? And then, uh, you know, third is just, just praying for more revelation that the Lord would show you what else he wants you to do and partner uh, with it. But ultimately, don't give up because there are practical answers to the questions. So, like, he can't say I'm coming and then if we pursue that like it's real, be as bankrupt a year from now in our understanding of what to do as we are when we start the dialogue. So know this. If you set yourself to live like Jesus is coming back, your spirit will be engaged, and when you hear things, you'll go, That's, I'm supposed to do that. There are people that have heard in this context, I'm supposed to become a forerunner message, messenger. They heard, oh my goodness, he's coming back. I'm supposed to not be somebody who can just talk to one person. I'm supposed to be someone with great clarity about the second coming so that I can make sense to groups. And I need to have clarity. I'm going to become a forerunner messenger, understanding. And that's one of the applications. Another one hears it and says, I must do frontier missions that are out there on the front line where people have never heard it. They've, they've got to know because that's part of it. Another person says, I've heard this message and I know I absolutely must give myself to a life of intercession for all of the realities pertaining to the second coming. That's another one. The, the list goes on and on. But if you start the dialogue with the Lord, Lord, I want to live like you're coming back. And I can't see any area of my life right now where my life looks like I believe that. I'm bothered by that, Jesus. Give me revelation. I promise you, if you stay in that dialogue with him, in a year you'll have a whole lot more clarity. And not just clarity, application. So it's the conversation. You know, if you've, if you've got a problem and you don't ever talk to the Lord about the problem, you'll still have the problem in a year. But if you've got a problem and you dialogue with him about it, regularly he will give you living revelation. He'll give you understanding. Because you're going to the source who's the one that knows the answers, who's the one that wants your soul engaged in the dialogue anyway. So he'll give you clarity. So... Your starting point, walk out of here tonight and just tell him and tell yourself, I'm going to pray about this every day for three months. In three months, you'll have some clarity. Uh, Andy. Okay, so the question is, in relationship to the timing of the rapture, why is there so much confusion? And specifically, like we looked tonight at you know, last trumpet, seventh trumpet. Why is there confusion that seems so clear? Like, I guess that's the question. Yeah. Um, in all honesty, um, the, the root, as I've done my best to look into that question, the root is fear. Um, and it's a misunderstanding about the bad things happening while we're on the planet. Okay? So the thought process goes like this. If 100-pound hailstones are going to come you know, out of the sky and land on the earth, if water is going to be turned to blood, if a demon horde or two is going to come up out of the abyss and go around doing bad things to people, surely God would not permit any person that he likes even a little bit to be on the planet. And that makes a massively, it makes a leap that is not there in the scripture. And that is, the thought is, if you're on the planet, you will be impacted by those things. But that's not at all what happens. God knows exactly how to protect his saints. 
while the guy next to him is getting a plague. I mean, great example, okay? There's sin in the camp. Moses, uh, he's hearing the grumbling, okay? The earth opened its mouth and swallowed specific human beings and did not swallow anybody else. Judgment from God. The parting of the Red Sea. Hey, you guys are all my guys and my gals and my kids and my sheep. I need you on the other side. I'll just park the water because that's pretty easy for me. And then as soon as you're through, I'm killing everybody. All of them are going to die. All of them today dead. Now, both groups experienced the parting of the Red Sea. Both groups. But the outcome was wildly different for those that were walking with God and those that were not. I mean, the examples are over and over and over and over. So it's, it's faulty logic to go, we must not be here when bad things happen because if we're here, then bad things will happen to us. No, they won't. I mean, God will seal you. You'll be protected. You'll have prophetic information. You'll, it will be just like all the times terrible judgments happened in the Bible. God led his people and his people weren't hurt by the bad thing. And those other guys were really hurt by the bad thing. And so it's actually, it's a doctrine formed out of fear that wasn't ever into, I mean, because no one ever stopped to think that you could be on the planet and a bad thing wouldn't happen to you. And I'll, lastly, it is entirely a Western thought. The majority of the body of Christ on the planet does not think that we will be raptured before the bad things happen. That is a Western idea. So the minority, it just so happens we're the loudest, okay? The minority group on the planet, the Western church, that's got technology and has got the ability to print Bibles with study notes in them and has, and has got the ability to, to uh, project and, and, you know, get internet and all the messaging out. The smallest group has the loudest voice and the worst doctrine <laughs> related to the, the second coming. And so, so, so we've been really loud about it, but I just, I want to say it again, like that is not the predominant thought. I, it's not even 30% of the earth thinks that way. It is a small fraction of the body of Christ on the planet that believes that we are going to be raptured before the Great Tribulation. The majority of the earth who has the Bible reads the Bible. You would never come to that conclusion on your own. You have to be taught that because there's not a single Bible verse, not one, that says that we will be raptured before the bad things happen. And again, any verse that someone would use, it's, it's a misapplication. Uh, like I was telling you about the the one with the, uh, the, as it was in the days of Noah. It's like, it's supposed to mean this. It actually really clearly means this. But you made it mean this. It's like, so, so that's why I think it's happening. Um, last group, is that you? Yeah. So the question is, hastening the day, and whether it's praying or going or becoming a messenger, whatever application of hastening the day, how do we endure in that? Because it's such a high and lofty and non-measurable uh, thing that we're praying for and that we're aiming towards, at least in the place of prayer. It's the same thing with the ending of abortion. It's the same thing with uh, so many things that we pray for. There is something about, and the Lord's, he's delighted. I mean, he himself is an intercessor. He is delighted 
for the pain of that gap. Like he's not bothered by that gap like you and I are. The gap of I'm praying and I've been praying day after day after year after decade and it hasn't happened yet. The Lord is not like, well, then I guess you ought to just give up. I mean, if it, if it hasn't happened in your long, long life, I mean, it's like, I mean, we just, we just, we're so temporal. We think so narrow-mindedly. And so part of it is the same way when we don't see righteousness paying off in our life. We're righteous because we're holy because he's holy. We live holy because he's holy. We believe these things because they're true, not because they're easy or they're fun. Part of this, in all honesty, and I, I know this wasn't your intention, and it's not a shot really at any of us, but it might help inform this. Like, we just want it so easy. And when it's difficult, we think of difficulties as abnormality. I mean, as Americans, we get everything we want in five seconds. Poor people live rich here by comparison to most of the earth. I mean, we just get everything. So we have this thought process that everything should happen quickly and the way I want it and, like, I ought to be able to yell at you if it doesn't happen really fast exactly how I want. And it's, like, so American. Like, we're just, we kind of got to get over ourselves a little bit. The process of the New Testament is live like God is real and live that way every day, whether the day is a good day or a bad day, and keep doing that for decades because that's what faithfulness is. And all the parables that Jesus taught about faithfulness, faithfulness equals hard plus time. And so you got to have hard, and hard for five minutes is not hard. Hard for five years. Hard plus time, and Jesus said faithfulness. I honor faithfulness. I want faithfulness. I want you to be faithful. And what faithful means is do the thing that's right, even though it doesn't look right, it doesn't feel right, and it's taken forever, and just keep doing it. And so Jesus has called us to be faithful. And I'll tell you, there's going to be so many rewards. Worship leader or team, you can come on up. There's going to be so many rewards for those that lived faithful. They lived faithful, and they, they walked with God not because it was easy, but because it was right. And they did it in this season, and this season, and this season. And God is going to promote those people so big time in the next age because he values faithfulness above a lot of things. He values faithfulness. And so part of our endurance is we got to shift our perspective and go, I'm not doing this because it's fun or easy. I'm doing it because it's Jesus. And, and I'm the same way I'm going to love my wife, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do right, and I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and I'm going to seek God and I'm going to give money away. I, not because it's fun or easy, but because it's right. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take solace in the fact that he sees me. He's real. He's a real God with real eyes, really engaged in my life. And he sees this. No, no one does. No one knows whether I prayed it or not. No one knows whether I gave it or not, did it or not, said it or not. No one knows, but he knows. And I'm going to live before the eyes of one man. And if we can live that way, then we'll be able to live faithful, and that will give us the grace for endurance. So, Father, I just I pray for This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.